0: Welcome to Business Buzz, Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I'm here to educate and have a little fun at the same time. I'm always interested in trying to help everybody with at least a good second opinion. It's not always what you hear that is the best advice for you. It's always to at least get, uh, I like saying I like to get the other side of every story And that's what I'm kind of here for to help you Uh, business buzz, try to keep things local. I've got a lot of interesting stories today, but I've also got a plan that I told you about last time that I'm going to introduce you to. And what it is, is I was teasing you last time about how to never pay capital gains tax on real estate. And I go through this a lot of times when I'm talking to my clients. And I figured, well, you know, that's really, I think it's valuable information. I think everybody can at least going to learn something about it that will help them in particular. And it's, it's not real complicated, but it's just something that people aren't really aware of until they hear somebody actually kind of lay it out for them. And that's really the secret to the whole thing. So I sort of wanted to start out with... Um, I want to talk about that because it has to do with, it's you know, being tax season, it's kind of all I'm doing. I'm kind of living living in the tax world right now and seeing people every day. I will report, uh, I think I mentioned it last time, there is definitely lower taxes on the horizon. The main thing is that the lower rates are letting people actually reduce their tax liability in the thousands of dollars. I just saw someone today, and their total income it was like I don't know, hundred and twenty thousand. Then they have some deductions. The bottom line is that their actual liability in 2018 is with the same amount of income is going to be three thousand dollars less than it was for the 2017. So that to me was really significant because, and that's just mainly just based on the new tax rates. The old 15% bracket is now the 12% bracket, and the old 25% bracket is 22% for most people. That alone is a 3% decline in the calculation of the income tax. So, if your taxable income is around 100,000, you're getting around $3,000 of a tax break between. 2018 and 2017. Fairly significant when you think of that if you look at, you know, if if you figure that a lot of families in Chico here are going to be having $250 a month extra to spend or to save or to invest with, uh, that's really going to be some kind of positive, I think, as we, as we go. The, nobody knows exactly what's going to happen. Nobody knows for sure what the effect is going to be, but I do like to mention the fact that now that I'm seeing people on a daily basis here during tax season, the tax rates are definitely lower next year, and they're helping a lot of people. And again, I'll mention there's a few things that happen with the tax new tax rules that are actually hurting a few clients, and it's mainly what's called employee business expenses. If you have questions about all these types of things and you need a second opinion or just somebody to talk to for the first time if you've been doing your own taxes, you can call me. My uh, number is 895 and I'm always happy to help. Whatever your question might be, uh, it's also a good second opinion if somebody told you something that you didn't like. Uh, like I say, there's a lot, of, a lot of good tax experts here in Chico, and uh, I, I'm available for a free consultation. I'm sure some others are too. But just wanted to mention that 895-3353, and it's not a problem. If you have a question, you can call me. I wanted to start out today with an article that came up. It came up a couple of weeks ago, and it's called $20 Billion Hidden in the Swamp. Feds Redact 255,000 Salaries, and I'll just start reading a little bit of this. It's just an interesting article, and I'd never heard about it anywhere else, but I I'm, I'm want to share it with you. It says, The only thing the bureaucratic resistance hates more than President Trump is the disclosure of their own salaries. It's a classic case of the bureaucracy protecting the bureaucracy, underscoring the resistance faced by the new administration. Recently, Open the Books filed a Freedom of Information Act request with the U.S. Office of personnel management for all federal employee names, titles, agencies, salaries, and bonus information. We've captured and posted online this data for the past 11 years. For the first time, we found missing information throughout the federal payroll disclosures. Here's a sample of what we discovered from the fiscal year 2017 records. 254,839 federal salaries were redacted in the federal civil service payroll. And then the quote here that's interesting is, only 3,416 salaries were redacted in fiscal year 2016. 68 federal departments redacted salaries. Even small agencies like the National Transportation Services Board and the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation redacted millions of dollars in salaries. $20 billion in estimated payroll now lacks transparency. A 7,360% increase in opacity hides one out of every five federal salaries. Who's the bureaucrat in charge? Not a Trump appointee. The president doesn't even have a current nominee on OPM. So the buck stops with new acting director Kathleen McGettigan, a 25-year staffer who assumed the position because she was the next in line, not because the White House appointed her. Anyway, it goes along with a table, and it shows the fiscal year, number of redactions, and the estimated cost of those salary redactions. And the interesting thing is up till 2016, there was only 3,416 redactions, Estimated to be three hundred and forty million dollars worth of salaries that we don't get to see what it was for. In the twenty seventeen year, the number of redactions went up to two hundred and fifty-four thousand eight hundred and thirty nine, and the estimated cost of those redactions is twenty billion dollars. So it's just something I wanted to point out. It's not a it's not a political commentary. It's the fact that our government can't even disclose uh, that many of the jobs that our tax money pays for. So these are the kinds of things that they really start adding up in your mind and in your feelings when, like, for instance, I'm all day long helping people pay the lowest legal tax, helping them figure out ways to reduce taxes in the future. And then when I see a client who might have had a good year and now they didn't prepay too much and now they have to write a check for ten dollars or $15,000 to the, IRS and 2 or 3,000 of the state of California. You know, that that's when it really hits me. It's like, well, you know, what's this money going for? And then you read an article like this where, you know, uh 250,000 federal jobs are not even listed as to what the salary is. It's just uh, to me that's pretty incredible. It does go on to show the departments where the redactions happened. It looks like the redactions went up the most in Department of Homeland Security. It went up from 45 the year before to 137,000. And I'm just guessing if these departments are concerned about possibly budget cuts in the future, that's why they're now redacting. Maybe it'll slow down a budget cut if it takes a while for someone to dig in and find out what the salaries are. In other words. Is this like a delay tactic so that somebody can't look at the list right off the bat and say, we're going to slash you know 10 percent of this budget? And I guarantee there's probably a lot of meat that could be cut off of some of these departments, and uh, like I say, that's what hurts when people write checks for taxes. Nobody begrudges local police and fire, nobody begrudges roads being maintained. Nobody begrudges sidewalks for kids to go to school on. I don't think anybody begrudges that stuff. But it is hard to swallow when you see the waste of, trillion, of billions and billions of dollars in our federal budget, and now we can't even see where the salaries are going. I just think that's sort of incredible. I, I find it quite, quite hard to fathom. Now there was also uh, I, I really want to dig into this thing about these capital gains because a lot of clients they start freaking out if they know that they've got a home or a rental property or some sort of property that has gone up a lot in value. And of course if you've owned real estate for thirty years and you paid, you know, forty thousand dollars for a house in the nineteen seventies or eighties, well the eighties wasn't that cheap, say ninety thousand and now it's worth $300,000. you have tripled your money, and if you ever go to sell that house, you're going to pay a bunch of tax because you have a huge capital gain. One of the things I like to tell people about is the possibility of never paying capital gains tax on real estate and on a real estate gain. Now, the way to work that is there's two main rules that we can work with in the real estate tax world that are the biggest tax savers around. The first one is the exclusion of gain on the sale of a principal residence. Keep in mind when I talk here on the radio to you about the ways these things work, this is not financial advice. You still need to contact the tax professional to get the details of your own particular situation. These are just general rules that I like to bring up and educate people with. But you can't rely on what I'm telling you today and go out and do a deal and then say, oh, Harold said that there was going to be no tax on this deal. Well, I can't can't vouch for that unless I've actually sat down with you and looked at your numbers. So don't take this as actual tax advice. Just take it as information from someone who's familiar with the way these laws work. That first law, the exclusion of gain on the sale of a principal residence. If you have owned and lived in your house for two of the previous five years and you've simultaneously owned and lived in it for two of the previous five, the general rule is that if it's a single ownership, you get to exclude a $250,000 gain on that home sale when you sell your residence. If it's a jointly owned married return type joint home sale, you're entitled to exclude $500,000 of a gain on the sale of a principal residence. When you look at that, it's a huge tax benefit, and you can kind of see where the realty world and the world of realtors and large donors to campaigns over the years have really stacked the deck as far as the tax code, in favor of real estate gains getting major tax benefits. This one is huge. It affects a lot of people. It's not just for the wealthy. It's not just for the business people. This is for just anyone who owns a home, and the value has gone up. So that's the first rule that comes into play. I'm going to be coming up on the first break today pretty soon. But I'm gonna just kinda of go through the two major rules that were there's actually three. I'm gonna I'm not going from notes here. This is uh, being tax season. I'm pretty much just kind of living night and day doing taxes and then coming here to do a little education for the general public and you, if you're sitting there listening, thinking about the taxes you need to do, hopefully I'll strike a chord here with something that really relates to your tax return in particular. So there's actually three rules that are come into play. This first one I just talked about was the exclusion of gain on the sale of a principal residence. The second big rule that comes into play in this idea of never paying capital gains tax on real estate income or on real estate gains, the second rule would be the it's called section 1031, the tax-free exchange of real estate. That is the second giant rule with that. And the first one we've taken care of pretty much, you've almost taken care of everything up to the death of you and your spouse. So this whole thing takes us all the way to the next generation. This little story I'm going to tell you of how to never pay tax on real estate gains. So that second rule takes us up to the death. Now, There's even an after-death rule here that applies, and the third rule that applies is what's called the stepped-up basis when you inherit property. If you pass away with a property that you paid $50,000 for, but it's worth $300,000 the day you pass away, when your beneficiary inherits that property, There's that break I was waiting for. I'll be right back with the rest of rule number three at the other side of the break. Stay tuned to Business Buzz, Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I'll be right back.
1: Hello, this is Samantha Landy, and I bring you Psalms of Hope heard here on Life Radio every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at noon. So do tune in and join me for beautiful music and an encouraging word from the Lord.
0: Psalms of Hope with Samantha Landy, Monday, Wednesday,
1: and Friday at noon, here on KKXX. Every year a prom or graduation is ruined by an impaired driver, but now there's a new danger, texting while driving. Parents, talk to your young adults about the dangers and consequences of texting while driving. This upcoming prom and graduation season, please celebrate safely. That message courtesy of your good friends at Horizon Landscaping in Chico, where they take care of all your landscaping needs. Their commitment is to deliver consistent results with outstanding service. Please call 530-321-3121. That's 530-321-3121. Horizon Landscaping, where service is paramount.
0: Welcome back to Business Buzz, Harold Littlejohn, CPA, filling you in on the lifetime goal of never paying tax on a real estate capital gain. So I was in the middle of talking about rule number three. This is the one that actually kicks in when someone passes away and the new property generally, and I'll say generally because there are some limitations and there's some rules that would be too tricky to say a a complete 100% generalization. But in 90 or more percent of the cases, you will get a stepped-up basis. The beneficiary that inherits that real estate will get a stepped-up basis in that property, which means that that's their basis for gain or loss if they sell the property or if they depreciate the property. And we'll talk about that a little bit, too. So those are the three rules. Number one is the exclusion of gain on the sale of a principal residence. Number two is the Section 1031 uh, tax-free exchange of real estate. And number three is the stepped-up basis upon inheritance of the property. So I'll just make up a little scenario and walk you through how this works. We'll say that the Smiths have two homes and one rental property to start with. Let's Let's just start that way. And both of the houses that they own and they go between Tahoe and Chico and they live in both of them. Well, the one that they live in the most, you can only have one principal residence at a time. So let's just say they mainly live in Chico and they have a vacation type home in Tahoe. And they have a rental property, let's say in Chico. And they're getting up there a little older and they decide that they want to move. So they're going to, re- let's say the job, they retire at age 55 or something, and they sell their Chico house, and they originally paid 50000 for it back in the 60s, and now it's worth $500,000. They sell the Chico house that was their principal residence, and since they've lived there two of the previous five years while owning it, they receive a tax free gain of the 450,000 so they bought it for 50 they sold it for 500 their gain is 450 that's the difference that is tax free because they're a married couple they qualify for the $500,000 exclusion and their gain is less than 500,000 that is the first piece in this puzzle that they've accomplished by not paying any tax on this giant real estate gain since their job, they're retired from their job in Chico. They now move up to Lake Tahoe, and that their Tahoe residence becomes their principal residence. Like I told told you, you can only have one principal residence, but now that is their principal residence. If they and let's say they bought that for fifty thousand dollars way back when, and now it's worth five hundred thousand dollars. Also, if they live in that new uh, Not new, it's not new to them. If they live in that Tahoe house as their principal residence, remember the rule, for two of the previous five years, and that's looking back at the date of sale, and they have not had another one of those residence sales within two years, they can live in the Tahoe house, let's just say for two and a half years, and now that house is qualified to earn the right to do another exclusion of up to five hundred thousand dollars of gain when it's sold, because that house has uh, is now their principal residence. They've made it their principal residence because they don't have the Chico house as their principal residence. Now that house can become their residence, and they can then, as long as they sell it within a after two years has passed since the first sale. They can now sell that house, say, three years after they move into it, and that gain of 450 is also tax-free because due to that exclusion of gain on the sale of a principal residence. It's a pretty amazing law that really saves a lot of tax. In order to utilize the second rule, which was the Tax-Deferred Gain uh, Section 1031 Tax-Free Exchange Rule, That one is going to to apply to their rental property. So let's go back to the rental property in Chico. Let's say it was a duplex. Let's say they paid $100,000 for it. And let's just make up a number. Let's say it's worth $500,000. Now, that $400,000 sale is not available to them to get rid of via the exclusion of the principal residence sale because that duplex was not their principal residence. It's a business property. It's a rental property. And that basis of 100000 is going to generate a $400,000 gain that would be taxable if they did a straight sale of the property for five hundred dollars and liquidated it that way. But in our imaginary scenario of the Smith family, they are going to parlay the equity in that duplex, which is now worth $500,000, and they're going to take the profits from that duplex and they're going to buy a 12-plex for $2 million. I'm just making up, I'm making up uh, numbers. I, I'm not sure what that stuff's worth right now. Let's say they buy a 20-plex for $2 million. Okay, so they do a tax-free exchange, which means now this is something you got to be very careful You have to do this just right or it doesn't qualify as a, it's called a deferred Section 1031 tax-free exchange. It's also known as a Starker exchange, which I believe is the name of the representative who originally brought this into Congress. I won't say wrote because I'm 99% sure no law in the books has ever been written by a congressman. They're all too busy campaigning 24-7 to get their next election taken care of. But somebody wrote it and handed it to him, and he presented it, and his name was Starker. That gain gets kind of absorbed into this new 20plex that these people bought with the proceeds as a down payment. So they, they took the 500000 from the sale of the duplex. They never touched the money. That's the secret on these tax-free exchanges. You can't have the money in your hand. It has to be done through a qualified intermediary You need to talk to your realtor before you even start one of these and say, I have to have this set up as an exchange type escrow. I do not want the money because once I get able to get the money, that means I didn't do an exchange and I got to pay tax. So they set this up as a qualified intermediary escrow where they're going to do the exchange through the escrow. They never get to see the $500,000 in cash. It sits After they sell the duplex, it sits in the escrow until it's ready to be passed forward onto the purchase of the new 20plex that they're going to buy, the one they're moving up to. So now the new 20plex, of course, if it's $2 million, they can either add cash to buy towards the new 20plex, or maybe they're taking out a mortgage for the million and a half dollar difference. However they do it, they don't end up, if they do this exchange properly, and there's lots of rules, you have to identify your new property within a certain number of days of your sale. You have to close, you have to purchase your new property within six months of the date of the sale or the due date of your return. That's where it gets complicated. That's why I'm saying don't take this as tax advice. This is just information that I've gleaned over learning these laws over the years. You need to talk to a professional yourself if you have a property like this or any kind of situation like this, you have to hire somebody to give you the lowdown with your numbers and your dates in particular, because I'm just giving you the, the general rules. So they end up buying a $2 million property. They didn't have to pay tax on that $400,000 gain from the $100,000 duplex that they sold for 500000 That's quite amazing. Now, there are some catches as far as what they get to depreciate out of the new 20-plex, but I'm not going to get it that complicated here today. I'm trying to keep it simple. They They did another real estate sale, and they didn't pay any income tax. So we're coming up on that second break. Stay tuned to Business Buzz. This is Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I'll be right back with the third and final law that I'm saving you millions of dollars of tax with over your lifetime, and your children's. See ya.
1: Astronaut Bob the Drop here. There's been a lot of talk about water found on Mars. Why would you go all the way to Mars for water when we have the best tasting water at Mount Shasta? It comes from our protected springs and is delivered right to your door. Great Bob. Hey, where are you going with that? Those Martians are stealing my water. Guess we have some new customers. And anyone can get Mount Shasta Springwater if they call us at 1-800-922-6227. Pure and simple, naturally the best. Mount Shasta Springwater. From the Pacific Justice Institute, this is The Legal Edge, defending your rights as a Christian, a parent, and a citizen. Here's Brad Dacus. Lost in the debate over the recent budget bill is a key victory for life and freedom. You see, inserted in the bill is a repeal of the Independent Payment Advisory Board, better known as Obamacare's death panels. Created to keep health costs down, the reality was that this panel arbitrarily rationed health care. IPAB made drastic limits enforced by the Department of Health and Human Services on what Americans could be allowed to spend even from their own funds on life-saving medical treatment. That a law this egregious passed in the first place is scary. Well, Pacific Justice Institute says, rest in peace, death panels. The Pacific Justice Institute provides legal representation to individuals without charge. Learn more at pacificjustice.org. That's pacificjustice.org. It's my church on every day. I worship with my church on Wednesdays and Sundays, but during the week when it's harder to get through the day, I just feel comforted by the people who are there. So it's a family. I know how important it is to constantly feed on this radio station. That's just going to help you so much focus on Him throughout the day. You might have a day that you're just tired or you are just feel a little spiritually drained and something just speaks to you. It just makes it amazing. It's teaching and talk you can trust. This
0: is Life Radio, KKXX, AM and FM. Welcome back to Business Buzz, Harold Littlejohn CPA, your host, educating you on how to never pay capital gains tax on real estate, if possible. But this scenario, it isn't all that complicated when you really listen to it, I don't think. I don't think you'll find this to be that complex. So we're on rule number three. So now we have the couple who is living in Tahoe. No, they sold their Tahoe house. I'm not sure where they moved after that. But they got two residences, big gains, tax-free. Then they sold their duplex and did a tax-free exchange into a 20-plex that was valued at $20 million. So now we're here 10 years later. They're enjoying some of this money that they got out of those first two house sales that they were able to keep, of course, tax-free. And let's say they're living in some assisted living. But meanwhile, their rental properties... Uh, rental 20plex is now worth four million dollars. Here's how this part of it works. You must be wondering now how could they po- how could anybody possibly sell this four million dollar apartment house and not pay tons of tax? Well I'll tell you how they would do it. Since they were smart enough to talk to someone like me or another tax professional to figure all this out, they knew better than to give this apartment complex to their children while they were alive what they did was they allowed the apartment complex to be inherited by their beneficiaries so now upon their death now that when the first spouse dies it's usually set up to where the uh, property goes to the second spouse the other thing that's important is you should have all of this type of property when you have real estate in California the t- correct title for the IRS to give you all these great tax law help, the correct title is to be listed as community property. You don't want to necessarily just list things as a joint tenancy, but I'm not here to give legal advice. I'm actually not here to give tax advice. I'm just giving you some interesting stories and scenarios. You need to talk to a professional yourself. So, what happens now is the first spouse passed away, and then about a year or two later, they were the rem- what the w- the one called the surviving spouse. That spouse now has passed away. That apartment house that's now worth four million dollars now gets inherited by a child. That child, under most circumstances, I'm not saying there might not be one or two that some sharpie could figure out that I'm. Forgetting something, but generally, that child could then turn around and sell that apartment complex right away, actually, and not pay any tax because his basis in that property is set due to the, what's called the stepped up basis at death. His basis is the fair market value at the date of death of that second surviving spouse. That is the way that that family took. $300,000 originally, plus the mortgage on the apartment house. So they took maybe $1.8 and they turned it into, and I'm just kind of calculating, a uh, million for the first two houses, plus $4 million for the rental. They turned it into $5 million for the benefit of the beneficiary, which was the ultimate beneficiary anyway. It doesn't have to be a child either. They took the $1.8 million total over their lifetime, and they parlayed it into $5 million, and no one ever paid any capital gains tax on all that realty gain. Now, to me, that's pretty cool. That is another point I want to make. The rule of the stepped-up basis, as long as it's done properly in the deceased person's trust— uh, this is better with a trust than with a will, but that's beyond the scope of this discussion— You need to check your own legal advice and do your own due diligence. It doesn't have to be a child that gets that stepped-up basis. What's confusing is there is a rule that requires that you do have to be a child, and that's the rule of the Proposition 13 low real estate tax. In fact, I just saw a couple today, and their house that's probably worth $300,000 now, I'm guessing, their total tax that they pay on it each year property tax is only 600 and something dollars that's from what's called proposition 13 it came in in 1978 and it protects you from getting hiked up property taxes based on the value of your house it's based on the uh, price of your house in 1978 if you've lived there that long the one thing that does require a child to be the beneficiary is if a child inherits a house from you that child gets to keep the low prop 13 tax basis if he doesn't sell it that's the thing that requires a child but this thing about the stepped up basis upon death I'm saying that that could happen even if you left it to a non relative if you had a fr- if you didn't have anybody you wanted to leave it to that was related to you but you had a friend like maybe your Local CPA that's on Mangrove Avenue in Chico. So, just kidding. But if you wanted to leave that apartment complex to a friend, the, he too would get the stepped up basis. It doesn't have to be a child and it doesn't have to be a relative for that. It's a general rule. That is my story of the Smith family who basically never paid tax on all that giant real estate gain that they parlayed into five million bucks. So Next time your friends whine about paying capital gains on real estate, just tell them they should have listened to Business Buzz. They could have gotten some alternative ideas instead of paying that tax. Now, you know, some people, if you need the money and you just want to cash out, yes, you will pay some tax. But the other thing to remember is the best tax rate around is the long-term capital gains tax rate. Now, it's kind of tough to calculate that on, like, a rental property that you've been depreciating. But the bottom line is, if you buy a place for $100,000 and 10 years later you're able to sell it for 300000 that big gain will be taxed at a favorable tax rate, a lot lower than the basic rate that you pay on, like, your wages and stuff. So that is my little education lesson today. Now I'm about to dive into another favorite topic of mine. And for the next few minutes, I'm going to talk about the issue of our country's debt and our debt-based system and the fact that the entire bubble economy we're in and the fake fake news, fake markets economy is all related to debt. So I'm just going to read this to you. And this is from David Stockman, who I believe was like Ronald Reagan's financial treasury secretary or something back in the 80s so this isn't just some flaco dude writing an article for the internet this is david stockman who knows knows his stuff so the article is entitled david stockman exposes the stock market's 67 trillion dollar nightmare it says this is getting pretty ridiculous for old time's sake we recently checked on the federal debt level during the month we arrived in the imperial city as a 24 year old eager beaver That was June 1970, and the federal debt held by the public was $275 billion. Billion with a B. Keep in mind that's a low number. That's about a fourth of a trillion. Mind you, while that number wasn't exactly diminutive, it had taken all of 188 years to accumulate. That is to say, Uncle Sam had borrowed an average of $28,000 per week during the 9,776 weeks since George Washington was sworn in as the nation's first president. Now, remember, that was as of 1970. We are ruminating about this seeming historical obscuranta because it just so happens that the U.S. Treasury this very week will be selling $258 billion of government debt. That's right. Uncle Sam's scheduled debt emission this week will nearly equal his cumulative borrowing during the nation's first 188 years and its first 37 presidents. And yes, there has been some considerable inflation since June 1970, and not the least because exactly 13 months later, Tricky Dick Nixon decided to pull the plug on Bretton Woods, and the dollars anchor to a fixed weight of gold. Now, I've mentioned that before. Our currency is 47 years old because in 1971, it got unhooked from gold. So we've been on a paper, full-faith-only monetary system for the last 47 years. And like I've pointed out before, the average life of a currency is 27 years. So we're on borrowed time. And yes, uh, let me see. Needless to say... The financial discipline of gold backed money during that interval of guns and butter excess would most certainly have triggered a recession and a heap of inconvenience for Nixon's 1972 re election prospects. As it happened, the American economy got a heap of inflation and destructive financialization over the next half century instead. Accordingly, the price level today is five times higher as measured by the GDP deflator. So, in today's dollars of purchasing power, The 1970 debt figure would be about $1.2 trillion. This is by way of explaining that it hasn't been for nothing that we have labeled the Donald as the king of debt and the congressional Republicans as fiscal Benedict Arnold's. I will be coming up on another break in a minute, but I want to get through most of this before the final segment because I've got some really fun stuff in the final segment. So uh, by contrast, at $67 trillion of total debt today, the U.S. leverage ratio stands at nearly 3.5 times, and therein lies the giant financial skunk in the woodpile. Had the historically proven leverage ratio of 1.5 times national income had not been upended by Tricky Dick's perfidy, there would be $30 trillion of total debt on the U.S. economy today, not $67 trillion. So those two extra turns of leverage amounts to $37 trillion, an economic milestone that is grinding capitalist growth steadily lower and which has now put the Main Street and Wall Street economy alike in harm's way. So that was just a, uh, I'm not going to go on, but if you want to look at that article, it came off of uh, zerohedge.com, and it was from David Stockman, and it's called David Stockman Exposes the Stock Market $67 Trillion Nightmare. So I'm gonna come back with a little more fun topics. I'm glad we're discussing the debt because we're in a debt-based system and at some point the bubbles are gonna pop. Stay tuned to Business Buzz, I'll be right back.
1: My name is Lola Silvestri, and I'm going to be 95 this year. I was very independent. I fell, and I had to have Meals on Wheels. America, let's do lunch. One in six seniors faces the threat of hunger, and millions more live in isolation. Drop off a hot meal and say a quick hello. Volunteer for Meals on Wheels by donating your lunch break at americaletsdolunch.org. This message brought to you by Meals on Wheels America and the Ad Council.
0: Welcome back to Business Buzz. Harold Littlejohn, CPA, talking with you about, oh, fun topics like major debt and all those kind of things. But I'm here as a positive factor because I want to be the voice that does not agree with everything you hear from other people and other places. Your money's not always all that safe. I'm going to read a little bit from another article His name, uh, the author's name is Egon von Greyers. I like to read his stuff, but I like the way he puts this one. It's called, the title of this article is called Own Gold Before Pandora Reopens the Box. And his website is called goldswitzerland.com, and you can read these articles there. I'm just going to give you a little basics on what we're talking about here. In the old Greek mythology, the open of opening of Pandora's box unleashed many evils on the world. Within the next few years, we will see a modern Pandora's box being opened that will lead to events in the world, which will be as devastating as when the ancient box was opened. The very big difference is that this time the consequences will not be part of historical mythology. Instead, they will be real and catastrophic for the whole world on a scale never experienced in history. Pandora, the all-giving, was the first human woman created by the Greek gods. Zeus ordered her creation to punish humanity due to Prometheus' theft of the secret of fire, a secret he gave to humanity. Pandora got hold of a box, actually a jar, belonging to Prometheus' brother and opened it, thereby letting out all the evils of humanity, including death and disease. Realizing her mistake, she closed the jar and the only thing left inside was hope. Just as the punishment Pandora inflicted on humanity, the world will in coming years be punished for the excesses, debts, deceit, lies, decadence, and lack of moral and ethical values. I don't think anybody can disagree with that. As the modern Pandora's box is opened, there will be so many problems and shocks that the world will experience that the list will be endless. Now here's where he gets to the point. There have been innumerable periods in history when a sound economy based on sound principles has been transformed into massive debts, money printing, and more. Some of these cycles have been of a smaller magnitude, and virtually all of them have been local or regional. Thus, we have seen many examples of economic collapse in individual countries like Argentina or in regions like the Roman Empire. Now, here's the main point of this article. But never before in history has virtually every country and every region been insolvent or bankrupt simultaneously. Then he just sort of lists things. Here it says, China, debt to G... Debt to gross domestic product, 833%. If we start with China, debt has grown exponentially in this century. Now, remember, this century, when I hear that, I think about like the whole 1900s of 100 years. No, we're talking 18 years since the year 2000. Uh, Like, uh, has grown exponentially in this century from $2 trillion to $40 trillion. Like most debt-based countries, China has to grow debt at ever-increasing rates To expand GDP. Since 2009, Chinese debt has grown three times faster than GDP. Now remember, GDP is gross domestic product. That's like the total production of the entire country for the year. China's debt to GDP ratio is estimated at around a massive 300%. But if we base debt to GDP on the Financial Stability Board figures, the result is very different. Included in their calculation is also all financial assets. On that measure, the Chinese debt-to-GDP ratio is a staggering 833%. That means 8 to 1. UK, debt-to-GDP 1,008%, but China is not the worst. Using the same measure, the UK, being the world's largest financial center, has 1,008% debt-to-GDP. That means 10 to 1. Many industrialized countries are above 400%. Switzerland with a banking system which is too big for the country would also be at the top of the list. And then he goes on to list these, these places. Then he says third on the list is Japan, 657% of debt to GDP. I won't go into all those details. Then he also mentions uh, another major problem, major problem for Japan is the aging and shrinking population. Uh, in 2065, 40% of the population will be 65 and over. So that's not good either for the economy. And then he goes on to talk about the EU, a disaster waiting to happen. And he calls them the unelected and unaccountable Brussels elite is doing what they can to hide the euro area problems. Going from a customs union to a political and economic union has been a disaster for major parts of Europe. The people in the UK decided that they did not want this elite to make most of the laws and regulations for Britain. That's something to remember when you hear about the EU. This entire people running the EU's financial center in Brussels is unelected. And that's why, that's why Great Britain voted to uh, leave the European Union. Brussels are using all the tricks in the book to stop Brexit with threats, blackmail, etc. The UK is not the only country fed up with being ruled by Brussels. Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic... Have difficulties living with foreign rule. So he goes on to talk about that. So the, the, the bottom line and his point is that in order to keep this whole thing going, there has to be more and more money printed to cover the interest on all this debt. So uh, And herein lies the crux of the financial system and the world economy. We live in a world which can only survive with ever-increasing amounts of debt. The world is long past the point when the real economy grows without financial stimulus. Whatever country you choose, the result is the same. Take the U.S. Debt has grown almost four times since 2000, and GDP hasn't even doubled. The world needs a continuous stimulant in the form of an injection of printed money and credit just to survive. That is why debt is growing exponentially while real GDP is not growing at all. Since the latest financial crisis started in 2006, global GDP is up 26%, while global debt has doubled and is now around 240 trillion, plus another one and three quarters quadrillion in derivatives and unfunded liabilities. How can anyone believe that a sick world based on debt can ever cope with the reduction in stimulus that the Fed and ECB have now started? Now, here I'll just interject. Our Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank has acted as if they're not going to keep buying this debt and to keep propping it up. And he says, And not only that, interest rates have now bottomed and higher rates will hit a debt-infested world that can't even cope with zero or negative rates. But the cycle has turned and inflation combined with higher rates are next. There is nothing governments or central banks can do. Collapsing currencies and collapsing debt markets will cause massive inflation and rates in the teens at least, and governments will be helpless. All they can do is to apply the failed Keynesian medicine of more credit and more printed money. It is evident that a world in a debt crisis cannot be cured by the same medicine that caused it in the first place. More debt and more printed money can only multiply the problem exponentially. There is no time in history when major debt expansion has created real prosperity for the world as a whole. Yet there is the minuscule minority which has benefited, but most of their gains will disappear, as we will experience the biggest wealth destruction in history. There is nothing sound in our current financial system. Virtually all sovereign nations are bankrupt. Add to that the pension, Social Security, medical, and other unfunded liabilities. There will be no money for any of that. Tax revenues will collapse, and there will be no or very little money to pay for any government expenditure whether it is schools, hospitals, defense, roads, transport, etc. Most of the problems of debts, deficits, insolvent banks, and sovereign nations are known to anyone who cares to study it, but governments and central banks have decided to put their heads in the sand, hoping the problems will go away. But when Pandora's box opens fully this time, it will not just be all the known problems which will shock the world, because in a world based on debt and printed money, there will be numerous falsities, frauds, and concealed bad news emerging. Shocking events will come out of every corner. We will find out that governments have lied to us in any area from finance to politics. Both banks and central banks will have hidden all the bad news, just like a fraudulent trader who hopes to recover on the next position. The same with big corporations. Having been through a number of downturns, I have seen this before, especially in the 1970s. But the problem this time is so much bigger that the consequences will be disastrous. Central banks will respond with the only remedy they know. They will print unlimited money, creating hyperinflation for a brief period. But printing more money will only exacerbate the problem. And writing off all debts, which many people put forward as a solution, is certainly not a panacea. If it was that easy, why don't we just continue to borrow and print and write off the debts to create the ultimate Shangri-La law? For one simple reason, it doesn't work. If all the debt is written off, then the assets that this debt has supported will also implode in value. Thus, we would have a wealth destruction of a magnitude that the world has never seen before. Most financial assets will disappear or lose 90 to 95% in value. The most likely outcome is not that debts will be written off, but they will implode in value since they will never be repaid. The consequence will be the same. A deflationary implosion Of debt and assets so anyway that's fun reading but uh, like I say it's not negative because I'm telling you that you need to at least be aware that the money that you supposedly own in these digitized bank accounts is not always as safe as people want to let you let on that it is it really isn't that safe in the long run and you need to at least hedge your bets and protect yourself and uh, of course Von Greyer's thing is physical gold, you know, being a Swiss guy, you know, they're kinda they're kind of into that stuff. But I just wanted to point that out to you because it's not gonna be pretty when these bubbles burst, and I don't know when that'll be. Could be this year, could be next year, could be ten years from now. But whenever it is, you do wanna be safe and you wanna have at least bought some form of money insurance uh when the when the time uh, when the stuff hits the fan i uh, i should say okay i've got a few minutes left i'm so happy you're still with me that was a it's interesting news and i don't want to depress anybody but you really got to be on your toes you can't just assume that everything you own is going to stay in good shape like it looks like it's it's at right now so uh the next segment i wanted to talk to you about in these last few minutes is just some things I've been really studying lately a lot and it's there's a real good book that I've been listening to a lot in my CDs instead of reading I never have time to really sit and read a book so I listen a lot when I'm driving and this book is called a new earth and it's by Eckhart Tolle the author of the power of now so he's he's a real deep-thinking guy and It's very interesting, the things that he comes up with. Then he tells stories and fables, and he kind of points out. And one of the things that I really got out of his things yesterday, I was driving quite a bit, so I was listening, is the idea of non-judgment and non-attachment. And the basis of what he's saying is that everything in the world is going to go away at some point. Uh, he's got a little fable where the, the king uh, begs the wizard to tell him uh, how to be happy, and the wizard tells him, well, it's going to cost you everything you have, and the king ends up with a gold ring, and on the gold ring it says, this too will pass. So the point of that little fable is that non-attachment to things that are going to go away is a very powerful tool to help with your just your general well-being the more you're attached to things the more you're going to be depressed or upset when those things go away which they always do if you've noticed everything changes nothing stays the same And eventually everything will be completely gone. People will be gone. Your expectations of people will go away. Your happiness with the way they react to you will go away. I'm just listing off some things. I didn't do any written notes on this. The attachment to things is probably the biggest cause of suffering in the world. And it doesn't need to be that way. If you can... Realize that everything passes. You can minimize the amount that you're attached to things so when they do change or when they do go away or when they do crumble, it won't be such a major hit to your peace of mind. And after all, what could be better than peace of mind? So that's my little discussion today. I hope you enjoyed the show. This is Harold Littlejohn, CPA. Join me next time for Business Buzz. KKXX. Paradise. K280. GL. Chico. And K283AR. Chico. Yuba City, Marysville.
1: With SRN News, I'm Greg Clugston in Washington. The chairman of the Senate Appropriations Committee, Republican Thad Cochran of Mississippi, says he will resign April 1st because of health problems. The 80-year-old Cochran stayed home for a month last fall before returning to Washington in October to give Republicans the majority they needed to pass a budget plan. Residents of the Northeast are still cleaning up after last week's devastating storm. The fierce storm that slammed into the Northeast knocked down trees and power lines, flooded areas along the coast, and shut down some schools. Nine people died, two of them children who were killed by falling trees. At the height of the storm, more than two million homes and businesses lost electricity. Hundreds of thousands are